Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Working That Is Chrononauts Chronicles. My name is Bill, and I will be your guide on this particular Sonic adventure. This show is, of course, sponsored by MysticalWares.com, which is which is Derek Condit's online store. He has a brick-and-mortar uh, version of this. Oh, speaking of Derek, here he is. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll admit him and we might start over since we might be able to broadcast now so we'll just kind of hang out until can you hear me okay i can okay i mean you're sorry about being late i can bore you with the drama it's crazy running a physical store that's like this is all i can really say i was just (laughs) mentioning that you have a physical store i guess i just start i started the intro already or whatever so but uh, we could start over if you wanted Oh, it makes no difference to me. I'm gonna start broadcasting here in just moments. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll we'll just keep uh we'll keep rolling then. Uh, just welcomed everybody to the show, and uh, said that we're sponsored by mysticalwares.com, but that there is a, a an actual brick and mortar store, which we'll hear more about in just a few minutes. I'm I'm hoping uh, Ben is joining us as well, so we'll keep rolling right along here. Um, let's see. What is it that we exactly do here on Chrononaut Chronicles? Well, the uh, show has been broken down into four sections, pretty much, starting with the Old Farmer's Almanac, which is just a brief overview of what is to come next week in relation to uh, the planets and if we want to capitalize and work with any of that energy. So it's really just a quick glance at... uh, the future week to see what looks, you know, what 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 lies in store for us. Uh, but then the show really starts off with the gratitude segment. And this being a working, you know, you can never have too much love in 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 a, in a spell, right? So we can never have too much gratitude. But the point of of gratitude is to perpetuate this heart brain coherence that we talk about so much on on the show. And uh, Adam and I have have kind of come up with this segment uh, from 13 questions and it's, so it's kind of a holdover from from that show so we'll show gratitudes after the old farmer's almanac and then we move into the silver segment which is more or less uh, relatively newly rebranded and the goal of this is to learn something new so uh, today actually we will be covering the parts of the soul according to the egyptians i have a book by robert m place for that and along with uh, some some other stories, some storylines, guideline, guidelines, no, storylines, headlines. There we go. Some headlines. And uh, lastly is the sword segment. And sword is a uh, alluding to words. And this can be pretty much just summed up with uh, being impeccable with your word. This is a segment all about thoughts and thinking and uh, empowerment, really. So uh, we'll be reading from Neville Goddard again today. Uh, Freedom for All, published in 1942. And uh, this is the chapter on the Sabbath. Ooh, that was a mouthful. But, uh, yes, real quickly, Old Farmer's Almanac. Tuesday is really the only happening day this week. So tomorrow we've got the moon and Jupiter conjunct and the moon and Uranus conjunct. Uh, Interesting side note. Friday is the end of the dog days. Dog days of summer are over officially on Friday, according to the Old Farmer's Almanac, at least. But uh, 
enough of that let's get into gratitudes and i'm going to uh jump right into derek because he joined us uh just recently so let's uh let's catch up with him and uh what are you uh so what's up and uh what are you grateful for yeah welcome sorry uh for stepping a little bit late um it's i'm trying i don't know i don't take notes of which gratitudes i've done over the different podcasts but this one um, is going to be for synchronicities um, in my life that happen. You know, of course, we can call them breadcrumbs, but because they've just happened so often um, that I just really I'm focusing on paying attention to them and following them wherever that trail leads me. So and that sometimes so this actually ties into people that and sometimes just customers, random people walking in the store, which is what just happened and held me up. But it was all good. Um, it was one of those breadcrumbs or synchronicities in life that were meant to be um, that led to something else. I'm just kind of keeping a bag for, for the segment right now. Um, but so I guess, yeah, it'd be the synchronicities and then the people that bring them sometimes. So um, I'm grateful for as often as I can, because I miss them like anybody else, picking up on those things that happen. Um, and the more I do focus and pay attention, you know, the more they play out in a good way. Absolutely. I love synchronicities. I've been having some moon synchronicities since we had our moon episode a while back. But uh, there is a minor synchronicity. Speaking of uh, past episodes, there is a minor synchronicity in the silver segment uh, that has to do do with one of the stories we covered in the last, last show, but we'll get into that later. Uh, I have two other chrononauts with me today, and uh, let's go with Adam. Adam, what's up? What are you, what are you grateful for, man? air conditioning air conditioning yeah and hopefully everybody else out there is uh able to be thankful for that too otherwise be thankful for free heat yeah one way to look at it <laughs> and i think ben is here with us also i think that there might have been some technical difficulties but thanks for joining us ben what's going on buddy yeah. <clears throat> okay um I uh, also followed some Ever uh, breadcrumbs, and I've now moved deeper into the mountains, into a little cabin, oh. starting a new adventure. So the service is even worse than where I was before. Options farther away from everything else. So you're a little little choppy there, but. Uh... I can kind of, I can understand, I can understand you for the most part. We might have to send you like a Wi-Fi booster or something. I don't know if you're going to be out that far. Not a Wi-Fi, but I guess a cell signal booster. But yeah, my, uh, my gratitude for this episode is, is being able to go to the beach. So I know that uh, Adam is, is down in Florida and go to the beach all the time, but up here. Oh in my dude, I can't even remember the last time I went to the beach. What? Within like five minutes of it. See it out your door or something, right? No, no, I'm I'm not that close to Russia, but uh I mean it's five or ten minutes depending on traffic. Straight shot, all green lights, I can get to the beach in five minutes. Oh man. So it takes me about an hour up here in Michigan, a little less than an hour. And then we get to the west coast of Lake Michigan. Or the East Coast, I'm sorry. And uh, yeah, it's just nice to be able to have that available for, you know, a short amount of time every year before it gets, you know, dark and cold again. So 
Oh, yeah, but dark and cold at the beach can be awesome, too. You don't necessarily have to go swimming in the water. No, 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 no. But it's nice to have a beach option for when it is not dark and cold. It's just through. I'm going to be honest, Bill. My favorite time to go to the beach is late at night and when it's cold out. Oh, yeah, in Florida. That makes sense. It's I'm just... with you on that. Oh, yeah, I guess that. Yeah, I guess depending on the season for you, that might be a terrible idea. Just the... get like, a nice face. Yeah, ice. The ice it actually looks kind of cool when it's all frozen. You can walk out on it. Kind of terrifying. I've never done it before, but yeah, it's just nice having a, a little retreat that I can go to. It makes up for, make like I said, it just makes up for stuff. But uh, yeah, there's just a little gratitude exercise pretty much that we like to do every week. Not, not for the sake of doing the exercise itself, but like I said, just to, as a little reminder to help us uh, continue to live in the uh, heart brain field that we create for ourselves hopefully every day right to by be by thinking of something that we're grateful for and getting in that gratitude state and that's the, the point behind the gratitude segment so uh the silver segment oh yeah we're actually going to learn something so uh last episode i had mentioned before we get into the the headlines Last episode, I mentioned that we're going to go over the parts of the soul uh, in as uh, as uh, in according to the Egyptians, right? So I have to turn the light on real quick. Speaking of getting dark, so this is from Robert M. Place's book entitled The Tarot, Magic, Alchemy, Hermeticism, and Neoplatonism, second edition. It's kind of a history on magic book, really. I've been, uh, I've had this book for a while. It's actually the, he's the author of the deck that I use, my favorite deck, not the only deck that I use or that I have, but yeah, he has uh, the Alchemical Tarot deck along with two, oh, another one, the Tarot Sevenfold Mystery, but I digress. The, the parts of the soul, according to the Egyptians. Robert writes that it is well known that the Egyptians mummified their dead, wrapped them in linen, and placed them in boxes carved in their likeness. These were all magical acts, and we can now see that by doing this, the Egyptians believed that they were imitating Osiris. The reason that the Egyptians wanted to preserve their bodies that they believed that their souls had several distinct parts, and some parts would need the body even after they were dead. Ancient Egyptians, oh, I'm sorry, ancient Egyptian religious beliefs about the soul are confusing and inconsistent. They evolved and changed over 3,000 years of Egyptian civilization. From religious texts and inscriptions, we can determine that the Egyptians observed that each individual had seven parts. First of all, there is the physical body, or the sum of body's parts. This was called the ha, also spelled H, it's spelled H-A, but it's also spelled H-A-W or K-A-H. And connected to the body and following it everywhere was the shoot. It's spelled S-H-E-U-T. So shoot, I'm thinking it's called. And this was the body's shadow or silhouette. 
in a sunny region like Egypt, the shadow was always present while the sun was in the sky, and at night it merged into the darkness. Egyptians believed that the shadow contained the essence of the person who cast it. Statues of people and deities could also be referred to as shadows and were connected to the subject's essence. Besides this, the shadow also seemed to represent a figure of death, or servant of Anubis, the jackal-headed god of death. The shiut was depicted in hieroglyphs, hieroglyphs <laughs> as a small black human silhouette. Another aspect that was connected to a person's essence was the ren, which was their name. Egyptians received their names at birth, and they believed that it would live I'm sorry, and, and they received their name at birth and they believed that it would live on as long as the name was spoken. Names were written in hieroglyphs with an oval rope called a cartouche, encircling them for protection. They believed that the greater the number of places their name was written, the greater chance it had for survival, which is why we still know the names of many important people from ancient Egypt. It seems similar to the Renaissance concept of fame, and in modern terms, we may think of it as a person's reputation. These three aspects of a person, the Ha, Shuat, and the Ren, have a physical presence. But the Ib would seem to be a link between the body and the soul. The Ib was the heart, and it was depicted in hieroglyphs as a pot with a handle on each side. It is often referred to as a symbol of the soul, and it seems to be connected to the Ka, which we will discuss below. However, it was also connected to the physical heart and it was believed that it was formed at birth from the mother's blood. To the Egyptians, the Ib was the home of one's emotions and will, which is similar to expressions about the heart that we find in our language today. The Ib was especially important in the afterlife, and for this reason, in most burials, the physical heart was left inside the corpse while other organs were removed. The Ib retained the evidence of one's deeds. At the weighing of the heart, Anubis, the god of the dead, would place the Ib on a scale and weigh it against the feather of Maat, the goddess of truth and justice. If the Ib was equal to, or lighter than, the feather, the deceased had lived a virtuous life and could move on to the next phase. If the Ib was heavier than the feather, it was fed to the monster Amit, and ceased to exist. The following is an incantation from the Book of the Dead designed to assure the loyalty of the Ib during the weighing of the heart. O oh my heart, which I had from my mother, O oh my heart of my different ages, do not stand up as a witness against me, do not be opposed to me in the tribunal. Do not be hostile to me in the presence of the keeper of the balance, for you are my Ka, which was in my body, the protector, who made my members hail. The three principal non-material parts of a person, and therefore the soul parts, were the Ka, the Ba, and the Ak. The Ka was the vital essence or life force of the body. It was breathed into the body at birth, and when it left, the body died. 
but it would stay close to the body after death. And foods and drinks were left for the Ka at the tomb because it was believed that it derived its essence from the essence of food. The hieroglyph for the Ka was a pair of arms reaching upward. The Ba was depicted as a bird with a human head. The Ba was a personality. Well, I'm sorry, the Ba, the Ba was the personality. It was everything that made a person unique. It survived death, but it did not have to stay close to the body or to the tomb. In fact, it could interact with the living, especially members of the deceased family. The Ba of a living person was connected to their power and their reputation. In modern psychological terms, it would be it would seem to be cognate to our modern concept of the ego. We might think of the Ba as a deceased of the Ba of a deceased acting like a ghost. And lastly, the Ak, A-K-H, is how that's spelled, was the intellect in itself as a guiding entity. This seems to be similar to the inner guiding, guiding intelligence that I call the higher self. The Pharaoh's Ak, for example, was said to be the actions that he conducted that were in harmony with Mat, the goddess of truth and justice. In hieroglyphics, hieroglyphs, it was depicted as a crested ibis. Also known as the crested ibis, also known as the hermit ibis. After death, a fully formed ak did not need the body and could become one with the immortal celestial world. As Egyptian beliefs evolve, we find changing ideas of the role of the ak. It seems to be present while alive, but it would disappear after death and need to be restored. Priests would perform a ritual to unite the ba and the ka, and from the union, the ak was formed. In an alternative version, it was believed that after death, the Ka split into two and formed the Ak and the Ba. The Ak, as a bird, flew to the afterlife where it, it turned back into the Ka, while the Ba remained on earth, inhabiting the physical body. And that's it. That is the end of that little section in Robert's book. But... Uh, I found that it was, uh, when I was reading through it, I made a little note in the margin next to the ba, and it wrote ghost, question mark, and then at the end of that little paragraph, it described the ba as being, as acting like a ghost on, you know, like if, of a passed on loved one. So I was wondering, since we have a few gentlemen here that have the ability to, to get, uh, to perceive on that plane of existence, if that uh, if that kind of makes sense, that it's just the is it just the personality of the person that is left behind, and is it like separate from, I guess their soul essence, which is presumably you know, melted back into the oneness of the universe. Does that make sense? Yeah, my understanding of it is it's the piece of the soul essence that um ejected for various reasons uh traumatic you know experience will do that um but also i've recently i've you know talked to ghosts almost every day 
Um, there's actually one walking around on the porch right now. I was going to see if Derek could give me a drone shot of my location. I can't seem to do that when I'm, you know, to myself anyway. Um, but anyway, the, uh, I've re I've been sitting with and thinking a lot about a, uh, term for heaven, if you will, that has sort of been lost to modernity and i remember my grandfather used to use it and it's the hereafter right so that explains it to me perfectly that they're just here if they want to be <laughs> so having a you know quote unquote ghost of someone come into your awareness into your field is Sometimes just them saying hello. Time is the illusion. So was that was that ghost interfering with the this cell service earlier? Does he need to be helped? Right. I now? mean, do we need could have been the show? <laughs> oh, that can absolutely happen. I mean, if there's yeah, the the energetics is a good telltale sign you know if you're having your radio fritzes out or the tv or lights blink or whatever right like they definitely um affect the signal but um i'm not too worried about it i've been doing a clearing for a big ranch lately anyway so it's i don't every, i was out on the porch earlier everything seemed great every time i come inside somebody's pacing on the porch so hmm Catching someone's attention. But the other interesting thing that I found about the uh, the soul, according to the Egyptians, is that the shadow is part, even though it's, it's the physical, it's part of the physical body, right? The, the all-encompassing, like what makes a human or a person, or an entity like us, an entity like us, right? Is like our shadow. I've never thought of that as being, you know, having deserving of its own category but in going with the uh secret derek did you have something to say no i was just going to add into that too that yeah like you're just seeing the shadows a reflection of you on another density so it does contain part of you it's you know you think holograms with what's tough stuff to talk about isn't it well, I really liked how they described that as being, you know, a part of the person. Because in my shadow work practice, I will often talk to my shadow, not just metaphorically. Like, I'll go outside and look at that bastard and have a conversation, you know. And it's uh, it's interesting that that, that tradition has translated that to being a part of you i like it yeah yeah i mean i like it too that's why i wanted to share it with you guys because it, it you know just connected some dots a little bit Very yeah awesome. it reminds me of uh some of the underpinnings of the theoretical physics behind like a holographic universe that you know if you have like a you know a hyperdimensional like a 4d object being projected into a uh, 3d universe that it's almost like a cross section or reflection like when you take 
a cross section of the 3D and look at it in 2D. You can do you can do the same thing with 4D down to 3D, and that ultimately this existence is that type of shadow through something else. So it certainly makes sense that something within this world that can create another shadow from you might lead to something else. I like it. Yeah, so that would be our shadow would be ourselves in the two-dimensional reality then. Because you know, shadow doesn't have depth, it only has I'll just default to animism and say the shadow is real. It is, according to the Egyptians, absolutely. And then that kind of also ties into uh, the whole silver in silver being analogous with to to the moon in alchemical correspondences. So the doubt, you know, in the moon is, is supposed to be our shadow side when when in terms of you know astrolog astrologically speaking astrologically I just made that word up I like it astrologically. So <laughs> and speaking of a. Uh, a little synchronicities there, but uh, oh, the other thing that struck me about this was the uh, the name uh, Ren, and that they have it circled in an oval rope called called a cartouche. Like this to me, like so, it speaks of fame, right? And uh, he, Robert mentions that, but the word that came to my head was legacy, right? And I think legacy is, is one of those uh, egoic things that it, it goes to. Uh, help drive us to procreate right is we want to ensure that you know, our memory lives on and or we live on some in some degree or the other right so it's interesting to see that the egyptians also had that that concept of fame but speaking of well and they might have also had the concept of trying to get things to survive through not just fame per se, but humanity through epic cataclysm. I mean, they are kind of like, you know, uh, either building on or participating in some of the great structures that survived the last cataclysm. Oh, yeah, just for the uh, continuance of, of knowledge, right, of preservation, I should say. Look, Edgar Casey said that there was going to be a hollow spot underneath one of the pauses of the Sphinx. It was found. It's never been publicly excavated. So, you know, uh, sure. I think there's uh, secret repositories of knowledge that, uh, yeah, that Egypt has definitely held. I mean, there's tons and tons of underground caverns and areas that are completely barred from the public there as well. Yeah, that's uh, where they keep all the angel tech down there, away from the public. but. That's that's maybe a topic for a different show. I have to do some research, provide some serious uh, resources for that for that kind of statement. But uh, just real quickly, yeah, I thought all the angel tech was underground in Colorado. In Colorado, what? That's what I, my understanding of it. There's a bunch of underground stuff in Colorado. Huh. I just assumed the angels and the aliens were hanging out. Oh, I'm sure that's that's probably one of the spots. They have more than one hangout, right? <laughs> but uh, speaking of just synchronicities, and uh, real quickly before we get into the other interesting stories I have lined up, I talked about uh, in the third segment, 
last show, I talked about the cure for leprosy and it involving uh, two birds and how this is a uh, metaphor for the cure for anything, really, uh, when it's broken down by Neville Goddard. But I came across this headline and just kind of chuckled to myself because uh, the CDC has issued an alert about a biblical disease increasing in a, a southern state. Uh, I think this is bad. This might be, uh, uh, okay, I'll take that back. <laughs> I think this is bad. Um, this is in Florida. So, oh, wait a second. Is this, is this, uh, okay, that must be a moniker. But uh, anyway, I put the link in the chat for you guys. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says cases of the infectious disease of leprosy have become more common in Florida in recent years. So. Well, fun fact, I don't know. Oh, they, they mention it here. This is very actually cool. Nobody mentions this. Armadillos. Yeah. Armadillos are the only known vector for um, leprosy. Really? Yeah. So don't don't chase armadillos and pick them up without wearing protection, which I've definitely uh, done my fair share of capturing armadillos to uh, relocate them. That was my question. Do people like this one give them a hug or... No, because here's my experience. They're they're on your property. They're digging holes. They're a nuisance. Uh, if you can grab them around the back of the shell, they're not that bad. But they're kind of hard to corner into like a cage. But if you can get your hands on them, you know they they don't go full possum on you. So you can control them and just throw them in a container and then drive them drive them out to you know a different scrub area and release them. But that's I mean that's from my experience from armadillos was. And so those are all over the place in Florida. I know that they're yeah, they're pretty common. Okay, they're in Louisiana as well. I didn't encounter them on my uh, dive jobs when we land on shore, and you see them running. They're really slow. You can literally kind of speed walk up to them and you know relocate them. But yeah, I mean, yeah, they go got short little bursts of runs. So if they know where they're diving and going to it, it's it's good to have two people. Got to juke them like a football player. Don't people. Oh, but... If you made a real loud noise, they'd just ball up and then just go pick up. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Don't people stick beer cans? I have heard they're marching north now as well. They're They're being cited in Missouri. Yeah. I mean, I suppose as, as we warm up, right? But they're starting to see them in farther north than they have, and and definitely in Missouri. Well, I'm going to take that segue because the rest of my stories have to do with well, have to do with animals. <laughs> um, there was one that I can't find because I missed the link about a new type of concrete that can store energy. So we will save that uh, for next time. But uh, something to do with MIT engineers developing a new the concrete but it's anyway percent c4 right um virgin birth in animals here we go very somewhat common a lot of species have this well this is this was actually genetically engineered into female animals for the first oh. time well this has yeah. happened with they've seen it in captivity with sharks and some other animals i want to say there's like three or four species of animals that have done spontaneous um virgin birthing I actually, I was, I was going to, uh, since I saw 
Ben's uh, technical difficulties earlier, I had a backup reading of Neville Goddard prepared about the Annunciation and the Virgin Birth of Mary. But uh, we're, we're going to stick with our original plan and talk about the Sabbath for the sword segment instead. But the uh, this is from nature.com, and it says that scientists alter the genomes of female fruit flies, flies, allowing them to reproduce without any contribution from a male. Like it's, it's just a laboratory-induced thing, not observed out in, in nature. But for the first time, scientists have used genetic engineering to trigger virgin birth in female animals that normally need a male partner to reproduce. Previously, scientists have generated young mice and frogs with no genetic input from a male parent. But those offspring were made by tinkering with egg cells in laboratory dishes rather than by giving female animals the capacity for virgin birth, also known as parthenogenesis. Earlier research identified candidate genes for parthenogenesis, says study co-author Alex Sperling, a development biologist at the University of Cambridge, UK. But her team, she says, not only pinpointed such genes, but also confirmed their function by activating them in another species. In mammals, offspring are produced when we know this, but many, we don't know how that works, but many species of insect and lizard, as well as other animals, have also evolved parthenogenesis, which requires no genetic contribution from a male as an alternative to sex. To identify the genes that underlie parthenogenesis, Sperling and her colleagues sequenced the genomes of two strains of the fly, the fruit fly, one that reproduces sexually and another that reproduces through parthenogenesis. The researchers then compared gene activity in eggs from flies capable of parthenogenesis with that in eggs from flies capable of only sexual reproduction to identify the genes that work during one process but not the other. The comparison allowed the authors to identify 44 genes, it's an interesting number, that were potentially involved in parthenogenesis. Here we go. Uh, after altering various combinations of genes, these scientists hit on a combination that induced parthenogenesis in roughly 11% of female fruit flies. So this is only efficacious about 11% of the time, 10%. Looks like uh, in 20, uh, 2022, um, they've done the same thing with mice using CRISPR technology. Ooh, CRISPR. Yeah, so if we if we can yeah, do this, CRISPR technology, you know, the most terrifying thing out there when combined with a gene engine, and probably going to be the downfall of life as we know it, and not necessarily life, but life as we know it. Did you guys hear about that story a few months ago about the uh, baby incubators, like the baby factories, where you could pick out whatever you wanted? Build a bear. Hmm. Like a build a bear for humans. Yeah. 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 I don't know if you guys recall that, but I guess I was going to ask because I think I don't think that was true. I think that was a. No, I didn't hear about that. I was laughing in the background about the build a bear for humans. I'm like, oh my gosh, what the heck is happening? <laughs> no, I mean, if it's going to happen every anywhere, it's going to be in China, right? Yeah, it was some some corporate 
private company that had come up with this technology, but I don't think it was real. It did create quite the buzz in the internet. Have you ever heard of a gene drive, Bill? I've heard of CRISPR, but I've not, I don't know exactly. They found a way. So normally, let's say you genetically modify a creature and you put it out into the wild. It's going to go and eventually those genes will be diluted because it's going to mate and it gets kind of separated out. With a gene drive, you completely eliminate that because in the offspring, it also overwrites the code and it becomes permanent. Whatever you input it in for that half of the genetics, it's there. It's baked in. It's not going anywhere. And that's the technology that they are. Uh, I don't know if they've implemented it yet or are looking to, but uh, uh, putting into mosquitoes so that if you put in some sort of gene to prevent their propagation uh, or a disease transmission, that it then permanently stays undiluted. Which would make that creature then immune? Or, well, it would it would have the genetics that it was built with. So, I mean, if you think about it, like you know, if uh, a mother and a father have a child, their child has the propensity to have you know a possibility of different eye colors based on the genes that were given to them, and then they'll have kids, and those genes will get you know diluted and diluted and diluted. Uh, but with a gene drive, if you were to put in there to say have blue eyes. Your kids will have blue eyes. Their kids will have blue eyes. Their kids' kids will have blue eyes. Okay, so it's permanently turned on. Yeah, exactly. It's taking part of the DNA and uh, it's re-encoding itself. I'll have to find a, a good article to explain it because I am definitely not doing the science justice. Couldn't you then plan it? It essentially means that you, you can make, you can design a gene and force it to propagate forever. Yeah. This reminds me of the sixth, I think it's called The Sixth Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I watched this movie the other night. It's about cloning and, and gene editing. And the, the bad guys are putting the uh, diseases into the new clones so they have a limited lifespan. And this will ensure that they follow the corporate guidelines, right? And they, when, they, when they die, they get a new body with a limited lifespan. And this is how they keep control of people. But the uh the way that they have you guys seen this movie with arnold schwarzenegger no it reminds me a little bit of no uh star trek uh plot in which i forget the role or something anyways there's a creature that's genetically modified to be highly addicted to a drug that if they don't get it they'll die Oh, that's kind of like the uh, the Gem Hadar and Deep the Gem Hadar. That's exactly what it is. The Gem Hadar, yeah. So yeah. it's almost like if you have a disease. If you stop taking this medicine, you die. If you don't do what we say, you it's, don't hear. It got me thinking about a, a McKenna quote. Um, when he was talking about the nearer we get to the singularity, the more novelty that will appear. And it's like picking the kid out of the catalog seems pretty novel to me, anyway. It's incredibly novel. If you go back to like biblical times and think of just the idea of a store or a Walmart, like the ability to walk and pick up packages and food and animal meat and things that are preserved and it's all right there, like that's insanity. 
from a novelty factor. It is. Supermarkets are a weird place. I only eat the tackies that are bright blue. So, with the... Well, there's a type of... You're chopping up real bad Chopping up a little bit. Maybe try to start over. Couldn't really understand you there. He muted. That's okay. Uh, the other interesting part about this uh, sixth day movie is that the way that they collected your brain data was to take an iris scan, scan of your eyeball. And if you remember last week's episode, we talked about WorldCoin. Well, Ben just dropped off, so maybe we'll hear from Ben later. But uh, the WorldCoin project, where they scan your eyeball to prove that you're human so you can get cryptocurrency. That's how they did it in in this movie with Arnold anyway. Well, listen, if you want to go down deep, deep rabbit holes, there's something to remote viewing. If you want to find a unique identifier on somebody, get their DNA, get their iris scan. If you somehow cracked a physics behind a system, an AI or something that could utilize that code, then boom, you've got your target number. Yeah, that's what they used to build your clone back. Basically, like took a picture of your brain and then mapped your brain onto the new fleshy body in well if if cloning is going to happen it's going to come i think of a there's a great episode of sliders in which they slide into a future in which clones are used but it's simply uh if you're rich you clone yourself and you harvest the organs when you need them like why wouldn't pe i mean there's huge ethical reasons, but, you know, for people that are willing to, you know, drink uh, children's blood, I'm pretty sure they're willing to clone a body of themselves and murder it. Yeah. I mean, we could all be cloned right now. That's that's certainly a theory that I've heard put forth. I mean, we did clone that sheep back in the 70s. So, like, we did it. It's well, look at, look at how much DNA we share with things like pigs. You know, uh, we have more genetic sharing with ki- pigs than like any other creature out there. Uh, you know, you can transplant a pig's heart into a human and make it work substantially for extended periods of time. Angie's dad has a bovine valve in his heart. It's like it's a common thing. And, you know, a lot of uh, religious books tell you not to eat pigs. You know, if you think about a long enough timeline with us being wiped out. Yeah. Genetic engineering could have been a thing here before. Like Monsanto's might not be the first evil. No, yeah, I think I think that uh, corn was was genetically modified. Oh yeah, and yeah, and genetically modified, even if just by human hands. Well, not yeah, well, not even the GMO corn that we have today. I'm like the the plant corn. corn. Yeah, you find a plant that's growing a little bit of a a juicy bit on it that tastes good, and then one grows more of it, and you keep doing that over and over again until you get the genes. You know, why is weed so killer today? It's so killer today because people have gone through the art of learning the plant and in knowing how to take different strains and create stronger ones. Why do we have gigantic tomatoes? It's the same reasons. Like, it's it's amazing. If Like, uh, I was watching a thing with Graham Hancock today um, talking about how the Amazon forests are man-made. They are man or man-cultivated. The dominant species are edible foods, are things like um, the different nuts and hazelnuts and things that 
are indigenous and out there. And if you look at how it is, it's thousands of years of people living in the area building a giant garden. Yeah, I, I was reading some story a few minutes ago, actually, that it was about a new civilization that was discovered in the Amazon using LIDAR, light radar. And yeah, yeah. Pyramids everywhere. and yeah, No, we're talking like uh, hundreds of millions of people living in cities. We're talking massive amounts. And they were never discovered because of smallpox. You know, you have a group of people that come through. Uh, wipe every, make contact, report all these amazing civilizations. Everybody gets sick. Everybody dies. The cities fall. Nature overtakes very quickly. Within a couple of hundred years, next set of explorers come through and there's no evidence. It's gone. It's buried underneath the forests. And, you know, take this over time memorial going back hundreds of thousands. I say millions in uh, millions of years. Uh, things get older the deeper you go. You know, it's it's something like, you know, 12 inches or something for every like 100 years. Expand that out long enough. Um, how many civilizations are buried under, you know, two, three miles of rock? All of them. They're all buried underneath there. <laughs> yeah. All the old ones under our feet. But speaking of old things this these next series of stories i have lined up all have to do with uh thought to be extinct species being rediscovered and we've got both plants and animals in in this lineup so this, this first one is i should have looked at this a little bit more closely but it's a video it's a video story so I'm going to see if I can share my screen real quick and I'll get this playing so we can all listen to it together and it'll just be on the recording for us. Should have had this queued up before, but alas, it's a learning curve. Now we're getting the blue spinning circle of of infinity. I don't know if this is going to work. But uh, it is around the uh, Hawaii area, a uh, thousand nautical miles southwest of Hawaii. And so it's underwater. NOAA team of scientists is mapping uh, the ocean floor and discovered an animal that they thought was, uh, was extinct. And it's not the case anymore, as they saw it. But we will not be able to hear what exactly it is because this video is not loading. Nothing else is. There's no writing in this article either. So, oh. Now to a oh, dive in the Pacific here where scientists are studying parts of the deep never been explored before. Emily Cristobal has the story. Nearly 1,000 nautical miles southwest of Hawaii, a NOAA team of scientists is mapping the deep sea and making groundbreaking discoveries. What is that? I don't wow. I've never seen what? anything like that. 
And it has it's that like, jet propulsion characteristic of a jellyfish. I mean, that is a jelly. Exploring waters deep below the surface of the Pacific Ocean, a team of 31 scientists with NOAA's Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute is making discoveries just like these. From their research ship stationed in the Pacific remote islands, researchers are able to see the world underwater by remotely controlling two highly equipped robots. It's just arrayed with lights and sensors, and it's got two robotic arms that allow us to pick up uh, samples and stuff like that. It's got a whole host of different water tanks and baskets for us to bring samples back. Brian Kennedy is one of the lead scientists of this expedition and says they even found organisms they thought had been extinct. One of my favorite organisms um, is, is the stalked crinoid that are these big, beautiful flower-looking animals, but they grow this on this long stalk called sea lilies, and that's really what they look like a lot of times. And these were thought extinct. We thought these were a relic of pre-dinosaur times, and now we find that they're one of the most common organisms in the deep sea. But while this area is home to some of the most pristine waters in the world, it's already facing numerous threats. Even in the deep sea, miles underwater, there are the effects of climate change. It's getting warmer. It's getting more acidic. There's derelict fishing gear and there's litter out there. We're finding microplastics still in the deep sea. And that's why this exploration was launched. To not only survey uncharted territory, but understand what policies and actions are needed to protect the area for generations to come. So we're going to have to take really dramatic action, and that's going to involve a little bit of everything from using less to using more wisely and probably even recapturing some of the carbon we've um, emitted. And I'll just stop it there because they'll probably just talk about global warming after that. Let's stop the share as well. Um, Yeah, so tiny little uh, tree animal looking thing. Yeah, wasn't that thing crazy looking? I've uh, um, I've seen in, on one of the dive jobs I was on, uh, we saw a six skilled shark, but that was back in the days when they weren't proven yet. So I've seen a lot of odd things, but nothing like that. And I don't know that I caught the depth. Did they say other than deep in the ocean? Near this is nearly a thousand nautical miles south. Oh, yeah, that'd be the one atmosphere suits. But, oh, miles. Wait, under. Well, I think it's just miles from Hawaii. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm like, yeah, it shouldn't be that deep. But regardless, yeah, there's, I think there's so much crazy stuff under there. We have no idea um, what really exists down there. I would, I would venture. Exactly. To... They find new things when it swims in front of the lens. Yeah, great point. Oh, yeah, there's there's got to be some kind of uh, outposts or bases down there. I know that there's been reports of UFOs or UAPs flying up and out of Lake Michigan. So it would surprise me. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, I've seen a UFO myself when I, before I even got into all the, what, what I call the woo-woo stuff. Um, geez, that was back in... Uh, it was off Huntington Beach. I'm trying to think. Uh, Catalina Island. We were off there, and it was. And I wasn't into UFOs. Didn't have any understanding of what they were. And it was two or three of my friends, just out there on the end of a, a a dock or a pier, and all of a sudden it just was underwater. I mean, just flying. Well, uh, I don't know what you call it, flying underwater, but 
moving underwater. Um, it was probably the size of a, oh, geez, I don't know, maybe 100 feet long. So not huge, but it was out there, and we didn't know what the heck it was. I mean, I guess it could have been a military thing. I never thought about it until you were just mentioning that again. And that was eight the 80s. Yeah, but it's probably been whatever is down there has probably been down there for a while. <laughs> so probably uh, if it if it was you know uh, military or ET of some sort, probably very old. But uh, speaking of old, this next story has to do with another extinct species. This is from uh, discoverwildlife.com. Australia, we're going to Australia this time. It is earless dragon is so rare it was thought extinct until two ecologists came across one in the wild. A critically endangered reptile, known only to occur in the grasslands around Melbourne, has been spotted for the first time in more than 50 years. Deep within the grasslands of West Melbourne, Australia, the population of Victorian grassland earless dragons has been quietly living and reproducing out of sight of humans so out of sight that there has been a verifiable record since 1969, despite several targeted searches, and many feared that the species was extinct. Uh, in January of this year, two ecologists were out surveying for another grassland lizard and found one of the dragons. Initially, they were unsure of the species, and they took a number of photographs and then released it back into the wild. And they did some morphological comparisons and it indicated the uh, high likelihood that it was a Victorian grassland earless dragon. And this was confirmed by later genetic analysis. And they talk a little bit more about uh, cons conservation and the like, but it's a relatively short article. But yeah, these are just kind of like ripples in time. We've got things popping up that are, that are thought to be extinct. And all these articles are within the past like four months. Like, I didn't say the dates when uh, I read. I them. shared uh, an article in there, uh, Bill, messages? Okay. and it's showing um, uh, a case where a bird re-evolved out of extinction, and essentially in Madagascar, species was wiped out. Another bird re-evolves back from another species and is almost indistinguishable from the original bird. So when I start to think, and this has been documented in, in several different species, when I start to thinking about oh. things like that, it's like, yeah, it could be really hidden. There could be a few, or, you know, could it be that life is what uh, the environment needs or, you know, like uh, how life is represented? is based on the environment. If you take a goldfish and put it in a small tank, it won't grow bigger until you put it in a bigger tank. You know, uh, maybe humans are going to be populated on the earth if the conditions are right. Makes sense to me. And as uh, I kind apple of- Apple trees make apples and earths make people as well as reptiles. Yeah, so that article you shared was the story I was going to share next. So we'll talk about. Oh, I'm sorry, I completely beat you to the punch, Bill. Don't worry about. It. I mean, it's still it was it was in it was in line. So, but yeah, it's about. Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories of all time. 
it's See, like this thing is so cool looking. It looks like a freaking dinosaur. Well, I mean, I've seen Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> but I have wood. So this is a woodpecker. It's an ivory billed woodpecker, and uh, I've got woodpeckers at least two different species flying around my woods here. I see them all the time, and they sound hilarious. Make <laughs> it look hilarious. They're just fun to watch. They sound hilarious when they start pecking on metal items. Yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, oh, actually, we had one. It uh, flew into our window because it's reflective, and sometimes the birds get confused. This happens more often than you would think, actually. But it knocked, it knocked itself off, out. It knocked itself out, and it got stuck in our, there's a rose bush out front below this window. So, Ellie went out there and she plucked it off the rose bush and it was out cold. So we take it, we put it uh, in in this uh, this wagon thing, this yard wagon that we have in in the garage. And Ellie's kind of just talking to it, making sure you know we're figuring out. You know, it looks okay. It's just knocked out. And the bird hops up right, and he chills out on on her arm for a second, and then he flies up to the metal. The metal, what do you call it? The awning, not the awning, but uh, the overhang on your roof. And he just he's grabbing onto that and chilling out there for a little bit. But he didn't, he didn't peck at it. But uh, yeah, that was my, it's my little woodpecker story for for this uh, for this show for this story this headline. But yeah, this is it's from Al dot com, Alabama dot com. Uh, says a new video and photographs purporting to show ivory-billed woodpeckers flying in a Louisiana forest were published by researchers on Thursday. As government officials said, they will make a final decision this year on whether birds, on whether the birds are extinct. The images, grainy and taken from a distance by drones and trail cameras, offer tantalizing hints that the large woodpecker yet may still exist almost 80 years after the last agreed-upon sightings in Louisiana. Uh, several experts said it adds to prior indications of their survival. They called on the government to drop the pending proposal to write off the so-called Lord God Bird, a nickname derived from the exclamation, some exclamation, exclamation that some viewers made upon seeing one. But others dismissed the new research as inconclusive, including a scientist who said some of the footage clearly depicts another type of woodpecker many amateurs mistake for the ivory build. The peer-reviewed research in the journal Ecology and Evolution comes from a group that's spent more than a decade searching for the woodpeckers at an undisclosed site. It includes drone video from as early as October, that shows a pair of birds with black and white coloring on the wings that researchers say helps distinguish them as ivory-billed woodpeckers. The last time a pair of birds was photographed would have been in the 1930s. So it's really extraordinary on that level. Is a quote by uh, some guy with Project Principalis. And the researchers also collected audio recordings of the woodpeckers and most of the team had some kind of direct encounter, either seeing or hearing them. An ivory build woodpecker would seem hard to miss with a 30-inch wingspan. 
in a call reminiscent of a bulb bicycle horn. That's interesting. However, the bird's preferred habitat is dense woodlands that can be hard for people to navigate. Many of those areas were logged early last century, and the most recent agreed upon sighting was in 1944. So, we've uh, got a possible another Jurassic Park bird back from Oblivion. And we've got the next story. There's two more here. As I was putting these together, I was thinking to myself, yeah, this is great. This will be a great segment. I'll have all these examples of the ripple in time and how things Where did they uh, did they say how they um captured that bird's picture? Was it like on a game camera? Uh I think it mentioned something about trail cams and drones, yeah. Yeah. Trail cams are really changing what we under understand about wildlife. Um, simple things like, uh, uh, there'd been reports, but nobody knew how common it was that deer would eat ground nesting birds. And it's like super common. They love to eat birds. What? So it's no, yeah, it's, it's no surprise that you might all of a sudden discover, you know, a bird that only lives in, you know, deep thickets in the wood. You know, I you can even go eat. back in there to begin with until it flies out. Wow. Well, the stuff you learn from Adam is amazing. <laughs> Every podcast. I appreciate Adam's encyclopedia. I know. I'm in awe. It is. So their their predator are, is deer then? Besides well, it's deer. a predator. You know, same thing with cows. Cows will eat ground nesting birds. Um, they love them as well. You know, it's like uh, chickens. Chickens love insects, small bugs, little snakes, things like that. They, you know, they are uh, carnivores. They don't just eat the corn that the uh, the farmer throws them. Well, but yeah, it's one of those cool little discoveries that, you know, no proof of. You know, same thing with black cats in the wild. There have been a lot of those uh, photographed out there in places where they're not supposed to exist. I just heard... Uh... Ben sent me a text message to backtrack there a little bit, but yeah, he's still having ghost issues, apparently. He keeps moving deeper into the woods. Yeah. That's what happens in the wilderness. Things get wonky. Speaking of wilderness, though, this next story is about a tree. Uh, it is from TexasMonthly.com. And it uh, is very short here. Uh, what? It says, who, what's, and why it's so great. Who? Michael Eason, Associate Director of Conservation and Collections at the San Antonio Botanical Garden and a nationwide team of tree experts. What? A missing oak species. The, uh, it's a Latin name. I don't, never took Latin, so I'm not going to attempt to pronounce that. Uh, that was thought to be extinct until nine botanical researchers scoured Big Ben in search of one last living tree. Why it's so great? When the last known specimen of the oak species, better known as the Chisos Mountains oak or late leaf oak, died or otherwise vanished, no one is quite sure what happened in 2011, scientists thought it was extinct. 
that changed last May when a single living tree was discovered in Big Bend National Park, giving researchers a chance to revive the species. Michael played a critical role in that discovery as part of a team of nine botanical researchers funded by Morton Arboretum. Morton Arboretum. And but United States Botanic Garden, who carefully searched the park for evidence of the oak species survival. Oh, there's a little bit more here. But uh link will be in the show notes. For those of you who want to read more about this tree. That's kind of uh kind of sad though. There's only one left. <laughs> I guess uh I guess that's good in that they have a chance to uh, repropagate the species. Looking for silver linings here in keeping with the segment theme. But uh, this last the last one is a, you get three in one. It's a three for one. It's from jpost.com, the Jerusalem Post. And it's about three extinct species. A British tourist shocked scientists by discovering three extinct species as a 51 year old british tourist by discovering a uh, shocked scientist by rediscovering three species that had thought to be extinct he was enjoying their his holiday in papua new guinea recently and discovered three species of animals that have thought to have been extinct obviously so they were extinct if you haven't uh got onto that by now uh, michael smith a 51 year old holiday maker was conversing with locals about birds when they told him of a colorful colorful bird known as lusada pitta it was worth noting that adventuring is just a hobby for smith who works full-time as the head of research and analytics for a medical communications agency Luisada pitta, the bird, was described as looking similar to a robin and native to the lowland forests of an almost unreachable island. This greatly sparked Smith's curiosity. Smith made his way through the jungle with a recording of a related species, birdsong. After some wandering, the birdsong recording he was playing received a reply. Immediately, Smith took a picture of the bird. This bird was later identified by scientists, and Smith was told that the bird was thought to be extinct. Dr. Ian Burfield, global science coordinator at BirdLife International, said, It is great to have the bird's presence confirmed. And this next one is Teleformin Sussus. Sussus? Real quick, Bill. Yeah. I think that's a little hilarious because he basically just catfished a bird. He did. He goes to the middle of the wilderness, gets him to come out like, hey, what's up? I'm not the lady you're looking for. <laughs> Psych. Just kidding. And now we know you're alive. Humans are dicks. <laughs> but on, on the same trip, uh, Smith decided to go adventuring again, this time to find... Telephomin sussus. A telephomin sussus is a type of possum, which was also thought to have gone extinct after 90, 1997. 
Smith discovered the species after climbing a thousand meters up a mountain. This guy's doing a lot for a, a R&D tech. Up the mountain, Smith discovered a local tribe cooking the possum. While that may seem distressing, as the animal was thought to have been entirely extinct, Smith confirmed its continued existence through its skull. Smith claimed that the tribe thought he was a spirit, according to the Daily Star, who reported him saying, We went to villages quite near the road and found a local family had assembled dead cuscuses. Cuscuses? They were going to eat as the cuscuses is one of the main items of protein. At least I could see various cuscuses before they'd end up on dinner plates and was able to examine the bodies. Once they had been eaten, I was able to photograph their skulls and take measurements. Previous discoveries. These discoveries have become habit for Smith, who reportedly discovered a Wandi Woi tree kangaroo in 2018. The kangaroo was thought to be extinct, as it hadn't been seen since 1928. Tree kangaroos are tropical marsupials that are close relatives of ground-dwelling kangaroos and wallabies. These medium-sized kangaroos have muscled forearms to pull themselves up the trunks of trees and move around the branches using an odd mix of climbing and hopping, according to the National Geographic. Now that sounds like some kind of CRISPR animal to me. Some kind of weird splicer thing. Probably got huge forearms the size of my head. Ripped. Little munchkin kangaroo. That's kind of horrifying. Think about it a little bit. Yeah, I just saw the uh, video that Adam shared in chat there of the deer and the bird. Oh, That's, and until now, I thought deer were, um, you know, vegetarians. I never, I guess, didn't give them much thought. Right? Do you think bird seed? Do you throw bird seed out there? They eat that and bread. But yeah, I don't really think of uh, them as being predators too much. You know, I saw a bald eagle. It flew super close to me the other day. That was kind of <laughs> definitely predators. Yeah. Oh my god, those things are beautiful and amazing. That's like the second or third one I've seen this year. Is it near your house that you've seen them? Uh, yeah, well, it, it was uh, on a river that's kind of by my house. And the first time was down in southern Indiana. Start looking for a nest. I mean, they're they're fairly easy to spot if you can get in line sight of the tree. They usually like uh, you know, to be in one of the highest points. I've got one outside my store here, Mr. Coares. It's a couple hundred yards away, if that. Very cool. Yeah, it's cool to see them fly in every day and bring back a fish, the unbelievable size that they're, how are they flying with that thing? They're oh, huge. my God. They're all I over. love watching birds fly with fish. Like, yeah, I live on that. I put my brain into the bird who, or into the fish's mind of what he's going through at that moment when I'm seeing it. It, it always blows my mind. Like, dude, the experience you're having right now. I've seen him drop the fish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great because I live right in the Puget Sound. So it's literally a daily occurrence if you sit out there enough. And it's, yeah, pretty crazy. Are they, are they dropping it? Accident. On accident. Yeah. Kill it? yeah. I know some birds do that with like turtles, I think. 
take a trip. Oh, yeah. There's birds that will take and uh, put nuts or things that are hard to open in the road for cars to run over. And then they'll go and pick up the, uh, the remnants. I read a story about a guy who found, uh, I think it was a crow locally that was doing that. And, uh, so once he realized with that crow, he was doing it, he, uh, he started purposely running over what it was putting in the road and they became like, they would know he would always come to his car when he was coming to, uh, to drive by. I was like, that's such a cool friendship. Right. I've always wanted to like establish trade with crows. They could bring me quarters and stuff. Well, listen, all, not all birds, but you know, most birds will talk to you, you know, they'll at least to give the, uh, give you a few seconds of uh, communication. I always, I always encourage people to try it. It's one of my favorite things to do is talk to birds. You are bird. Be the bird. Yeah. And listen, they live a long time. I just found out that mockingbirds uh, live like uh, an average of eight years in the wild um, and like 15 to 20 in captivity. I was like, that's that's a long time for a mockingbird. So it's nice to know that the ones that I befriended when I'm whistling at them, like, yeah, I don't, I don't have to feel like it's probably not that bird. It very well could be the same one. Are you catfishing that bird? I am. No, I actually I have a couple um, of unique whistles that uh, I use with my uh, with my local mockingbirds. I, I whistle the Mario tune. Uh, no way. That's yeah. awesome. Well, that's I... funny because yeah, you're gonna like all of a sudden that that mockingbird's gonna do it near somebody else, and then you go, "What in the heck?" You know. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I've told it on the show, but listen to how birds are talking. They always do the classic alarm: the woo 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 ee 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 ee. Yeah. Listen to that sound. Whistle that sound at birds, and you will get whistled back to. And it is so cool. It's like, oh my gosh, there's this language through our technology that has been imparted on birds that we can then use to communicate with them. There, there is actually entire languages built around no, birds have languages. Birds are smart. Birds mourn their dead. Like, uh, yeah, the, the term bird brain is a misnomer. They actually have uh, really tiny neurons in their brains. So they're actually able to have a much higher uh, density brain than we can have. I mean, look at parrots. You know, you'd think that thing was an alien. You know, it's the size of a football, but yet it can sound exactly like a human. Right? There's a little bit of uh, Batesian mimicry going on. That's another topic that we can get into. Now that I've said it, maybe I'll research it for the next next show. And get yeah, I'm not familiar with that term, but... Well, it's like, you know, when a, a cat will chirp like a squirrel when it sees a Yeah, squirrel. yeah, yeah. That's to make it think that it's not a threat so that it can get close to it and kill it. So we, we see this uh, illustrated in nature and uh, in, in paranormal, the paranormal as well, I would think. With uh, some of these stories of clicking, these clicking sounds that people hear out in the deep woods. It yeah. makes sense, though. It's kind of yeah. like an innate part of just being. You know, children will try to mimic. You know, uh, look at even dogs and cats. They don't have the vocal cords, but um, there's enough videos out there, and I've seen it with my cats, where you can 
you have a line of communication and you're asking simple questions like you want food, you want water, you know, things, words they know, and you'll get pronounced no's, you know, like a no, like a sound within it, a mama instead of just a, you know, mom. like it's, it's very interesting to see that there is a mimicry going on to try to mimic the tonality and response of the words that we're able to articulate. So even in species that don't do it, it happens. I mean, we learn by copying. Children learn by copying. You know, the first words they say are usually, you know, uh, the ones that are enunciated the most around them. So, I mean, that's, I mean, maybe the trickster aspect of life is just that. It's, it's, it's going to have a mimicry aspect. It is, it is a weird, like mirror hologram universe. So it makes sense for things to mimic. They say that history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes, right? It's yeah. yeah everything comes in a different flavor. Yeah. Well, Ben did, I don't think Ben is going to, to show back up. So I'm at a conundrum here. We can go with the Sabbath reading. Or we can take this one about the Annunciation, which kind of pairs well with a news story that I have been holding on to about the Virgin Mary and a statue. So I think I'm going, Ben was interested in the Sabbath thing, so I'm going to save that for him. We'll hit that next week. Hopefully he will have the uh, ghost problem figured out by then. So I'll put this last story in the chat for you guys and this is from dailysaba.com and uh, it says every third of the month a multitude of devoted individuals congregate in a windswept field near rome firmly believing that a statue of the virgin mary sheds tears of blood they also come to see the 53 year old woman who they believe has been performing miracles and healing the sick since she brought the statuette home from a pilgrimage to Medjugorje, Medjugorje in Bosnia, where many Catholics believe the Virgin Mary has been appearing since 1981. So, <laughs> side note, uh, the the Marian apparitions has, has been something that has has, has been. Uh, of interest to me since a very 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 early age being uh, brought into this world and indoctrinated into the catholic church from birth uh, these types of subjects have just kind of stuck out to me because they're weird right that talks about uh you know weird celestial events beings appearing in the sky messages being received so uh this particular medjugorje uh apparition or series of visions that that is mentioned here in in this story uh, is kind of holds a special place for me because when i was a uh, young boy at uh, saint anthony's parish we had one of the children that was involved in the medjugorje visions uh visit our parish right and he went into his and he wasn't a child anymore it's been you know since 1981 right so he uh he gave a little talk and but the, the I don't really mean remember exactly what uh, he said because the most impressionable thing to me that evening was the feeling that I got 
after he went into this trance and allegedly spoke to the Virgin Mary, right? But uh, the feeling, it was like a wave. It was a wave of energy that washed over the entire congregation. It felt like it wasn't just me. But it was warm. It was pleasant. It was it was very peaceful. It was a good, good vibe, good vibe and energy. But uh, I think that I have I've shared that story with Derek before. Have uh, Derek? Do you remember that? Have, do you remember me talking about this at all? Because I think I had a question about like who, like like how would how do you perceive this Virgin Mary? Like if if you could translate it into. Not yes, that your knowledge <laughs> or language. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I do remember you talking about it, but and then I know that there's been lots of different statues that have done this, um, and some have been, you know, shown to be hoaxes, and others they can't prove, and and it's not. So I mean, we can look in on that particular one right now, and I'm looking right now. So <laughs> so it's it's so interesting from my perspective, even though I do this, and I don't even frown long now. The instant activation of subtle energies around me so the on cue again tones coming in and ringing and all of that stuff that i don't even think about until it just kind of hits me um on on so on this case what i got when you ask something like i I always like to try and describe um how this goes from my perspective because it's something we can all do and i'm a remote perceiver um yeah they used to call it remote viewing so this time and it varies all the time when I receive input was a visual. Um, so I actually got to see, you can think of it as like a hazy video going on. Um, that one, it was manifesting. There were, in short, it was a legit one. And I could see the, here's the frustrating term again, energies manifesting inside and coming out. So it was the, the entities or spirits around it manifest enough energy in it to have that happen. If that makes sense. So I'm not saying there was a person inside of that statue. I, oh. I know I'm not even talking physical. Okay. Right, right. Okay. So there was not an entity like crammed in there like a genie mm-hmm. in a bottle. And you weren't saying that either, mm-hmm. but that wasn't the thing. It was a manifesting thing. Okay. So you're talking, yeah. So we're back onto the statue part. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, so a little bit about Medjugorje. Uh, Gisela Cardia is the is the visionary that these people are going to see. Claims the statue was responsible for a, a modern twist on Christ's miracle of the loaves and fishes, feeding visitors to her home in Trevigano Romano from a never diminishing pizza. Believers say Cardia is a visionary, exclaiming she predicted the war in Ukraine and the COVID-19 pandemic. Her body marked by the stigmata of Christ's wounds from the crucifixion. So bleeding statues. Chief among them is Cardia's conviction for bankruptcy fraud in 2013 and the charity the former businesswoman has set up to help the sick. Although it has been swollen by donations, some say their generosity has been abused. Then in March, a private detective that said tests showed the statue's tears were animal blood. Prosecutors are now investigating Cardia and the shrine she set up on a hill outside the village overlooking Lake 
Graziano uh, is threatened with demolition. The local Catholic bishop has ordered his clergy to have nothing to do with the shrine and has asked the faithful to stay away. A church inquiry commission, excuse me, composed of independent experts is now looking into the phenomena. But Father Salvatore Parella, the influential head of a theological group in Rome dedicated to studying the Virgin Mary, did not hide his hostility. We have known for a while that this so-called visionary has was absolutely not reliable, he told AFP. Trevigiano should not be counted among the apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Yet the faithful continue to flock to Cardia's hilltop shrine with its altar, large blue cross, and an almost life-size statue of the Virgin. Since the Virgin of Tears in Syracuse, Sicily, began crying in 1953, the only weeping statue acknowledged by a pope, Italy has been or Italy has seen countless strange or unexplained phenomena around religious statues. The oldest, the oldest and most celebrated of this cult, or <laughs> the oldest and most celebrated is the cult of San Gerano, the patron saint of Naples, an ampoule whose, of whose blood liquefies three times a year by popular tradition. An ampoule, I had to look this up, but if I remember correctly, it was a, it's just a, a glass container, clear glass container that is used in uh, laboratory alchemy, alchemical, well, chemical experiments, right? It's just a container, right? Uh, but uh, beyond Italy, statues have been reported to secrete water, oil, or perfume as far afield as Atika in Japan and Nanju in South Korea. Career, Korea. The Catholic Church says some are scientifically inexplicable. Scientists say many have rational explanations like condensation, varnish coming off, or chemical reactions between paint and the air. While Pope Francis warned against certain apparitions in June in a thinly veiled reference to the Virgin of Trevigano, some of his predecessors have not been so reticent. John Paul II was supportive of another miraculous plaster statuette from Medjugorje, which has been drawing crowds to this other town an hour's drive from Trevigano since 1995. A family there claims to have witnessed it crying tears of blood on 14 separate occasions. Although Neville, Neville, we'll get to him in a second, Although never officially recognized by the Vatican, oh, of course it had to reload just then. Here we go. Uh, never officially recognized, fervor around the statue has not been dampened over the years, with the statuette housed in a church on the edge of the port city north of Rome. Photos displayed inside show her cheeks red with blood, with tents outside to welcome visitors and vendors selling religious icons and effigies of the Virgin. However, analysis of the blood has shown it came from a man. However, the men of the family who own the statue stubbornly refused to take DNA tests. Hmm. On the other side of the Adriatic in Medjugorje, where both statues were made, locals firmly believe in the apparitions that have been happening there since 1981. 
everyday Ivan's 20 workers make around 400 statues from a mix of powdered stone and synthetic resins renowned for their resistance to all weathers. In the two decades he has been making them, Perutina told AFP that he has heard of some things that were out of the ordinary, like the clients in Portugal who reported that a statuette smelled of roses and lavender, even though we had not added anything to it, he insisted. The little statues are solid, so nothing can be put inside them, a worker explained. Asked if there was any way in which they could be tampered with, he replied, oh no, God preserves from that. So, no, uh, no tinkering from the creators of these things, allegedly. So, just kind of uh, another... I've heard of one of those before where they said they it weep wine or something. I don't even remember where I read that one. That'd be a fun statue to have. I know. Yeah. With <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the Marian apparitions. Let's see. There was Medjugorje. There was Lords. There was Fatima. So there's a whole bunch of these things. Maybe we'll dedicate another show segment in the future to exploring those things because there are there's one of them where the people like forget how many thousands of people saw the sun stop in the sky and move like it moved around the sky and everybody was there to witness it and there's pictures of this day like it's happened with you know within the advent of photography so that's just really cool to to think about and to research and uh We'll get into, I'm sure we'll get into more of that later. And plus, uh, speaking of the uh, female archetype and moon, we have Mary, right? Virgin, moon, mother. So, very fitting for the silver segment anyway, I, I believe. And in the true spirit of last minute synchronicities, as I was flipping through the uh, the Neville Goddard book for the Sabbath reading, the first page I opened or I flipped to earlier today was about the Annunciation, which is what uh, I think we'll be doing this time, and we'll save the Sabbath for Ben when he joins us next time. But before we move on, to the sword segment and I I read for about two pages not super long it's not even not even two pages it's like a page and a half did uh did you guys have any have anything that you wanted to share in particular for the silver segment any I know Adam shared a, an article already but did maybe Derek you want to give updates on what's going on at the store or the website or or anything new business-ish related like before we move on no, I didn't have anything for the silver segment. Um, no, I'm just uh, the only thing regarding the website I'd say is I've done a lot of updates on the Shungite beehives and saving the bees is important to us. So for those that are interested, um, there's a lot of updates and some more information available there. But no, I appreciate that. You know, I wanted to ask you about that because I would like to keep bees, but because of 
being in the woods and not really having a field is that a prime this is probably not a prime spot for bees and then i guess a follow-up question would would i have to mail them out every winter um you can keep bees anywhere you can keep them in the middle of a city they're gonna find pollen and nectar and they'll go seven miles just to get a water source so you don't have to they're not going to stay locally unless there's enough there um, but you can even keep mason bees or carpenter bees which don't you know provide honey and they're small little bird house size um hives that you can just nail to your back fence so that's another way to help save the bees and pollinate and stuff so you don't have to have go through the other efforts of harvesting honey and things like that well i didn't i didn't quite understand the last question you asked like so if i had a hive and gets cold here and winter starts like some people will mail off their hive for the winter to a warmer climate and have it mailed back to them is that or am i misunderstanding that process yeah i mean maybe they try and box their colony but that they're gonna no i wouldn't think they do that what they could do is maybe wrap it put it on a truck and drive it somewhere that's a thing they wouldn't necessarily mail it but even that if they took the bees out, well, then the brood, the babies inside are going to die because the bees will keep them warm. So what, what you really do is, even if it's snow, and I've had, I live in the Cascade Mountains. I mean, I've had five feet of snow in my hives. Um, you wrap them. There's different hay, for example. You can get straw or hay, wrap it around, keep enough room so they can exit the hive um, for cleansing flights and things like that during the winter because that's the only reason they come out, to go to the bathroom. Um and then wrap it with hay, and then it you're fine under snow. I mean, just even even if it's covered with snow, it'll it'll help insulate them. That's it's an igloo, but you got to keep an entrance, of course, clear. So no, you don't necessarily have to like send your hives away. If if we're talking honeybee hives, and there's right. a lot of types of bees. Yeah, honeybees. I would yeah. be interested in honeybees, but it's interesting that you mentioned the mason bees because I've seen those, and I have one of those mason bee little houses out front, but. Just this year, we got mason wasps. Have you heard of mason wasps before? No. Or potter wasps? I haven't. I'll 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 take a picture of this hive I have out back. It's pretty it's pretty gnarly, but it starts out as just one little pod, and it's got a long neck where there's you know, and then the egg is is you know inside, but it's just one one little one little dude right and then as it grows and hatches throughout the year this thing ex- has expanded and it's pretty much wrapped around the this the trunk of a uh, red pine out back but uh yeah they're they're wasps they're black and white and they kind of kind of have uh their hive set up like uh mason bees would where they put their, all their eggs in the larva back in it and then separates it with little walls and, and stuff but that's they're totally not territorial ter- territorial they don't defend their hive they're not aggressive and like i could i could literally re- reach out and touch touch the hive if i wanted to from my from my porch but i don't obviously I don't disturb them but uh yeah i didn't know that wa- mason wasps were a thing until this year maybe no, i've heard of them Yeah, I just learned today that the smallest insects in the world are wasps that are like point 
0.3 or 0.6 of a millimeter and fly using these weird like long tail yeah wasps are cool man and they're in the, these ones i was looking at were uh, parasitic Ooh, i saw a giant wasp i was at the beach i was coming back from the beach actually we were on the trail on the other side of the, the back side of the dune and this wasp was taking out a cicada this was like it's probably as big as almost as big as my pinky finger like the, the wasp bars, right and the cicada was even bigger but that thing was like scary looking Enough of this wasp talk. <laughs> Let's move on to the sword segment. And as I mentioned before, uh, swords kind of allude to uh, the air and thinking, at least in terms of uh, if you're talking tarot correspondences, and how uh, also alludes to uh, you know so words like swords, words do a little word magic, word play. There you you get both and. Just like a sword can be used for harming or helping in a task, so so can our words. And this also translates to our thoughts, because what comes before words are thoughts. And this also translates to how we talk to ourselves, right? Not just others, because how we perceive ourselves is going to impact how we interact with the world and how we perceive others. So. This is uh, meant to be a little, little encouragement for for the week, for for us, for me, for you, for whoever wants to partake. So this is actually from the same, <clears throat> excuse me, the same publication as last week, called "Freedom for All" by Neville Goddard. And it was written in 1942. The Annunciation. The use of a friend's voice to impregnate oneself with a desirable state is beautifully told in the story of the Annunciation. It is recorded that God sent an angel to Mary to announce the birth of his son. And the angel said unto her, Thou shalt receive in thy womb and bring forth a son. Then said Mary unto the angel, How can this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. For with God nothing shall be impossible. That's Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 37. Neville goes on, This is the story that has been told for centuries the world over, but man was not told that it was written about himself, so he has failed to receive the benefit that it was intended to give him. The story reveals the method by which the idea or word was made flesh. God, we are told, germinated or begat an idea, a son, without the aid of another. He then placed his germinal idea in the womb of Mary with the help of an angel 
who made the announcement to her and impregnated her with the idea. No simpler method was ever recorded of consciousness impregnating itself than is found in the story of the Annunciation. The four characters of this drama of creation are the Father, the Son, Mary, and the Angel. The Father symbolizes your consciousness. The Son symbolizes your desire. Mary symbolizes your receptive attitude of mind. And the Angel symbolizes the method used to make the impregnation. The drama unfolds in this manner. The father begets a son without the aid of another. You define your objective. You clarify your desire without the help or suggestion of another. Then the father selects that angel who is best qualified to bear this message or germinal possibility to Mary. You select the person in your world who would be sincerely thrilled in witnessing the fulfillment of your desire. Then Mary learns through the angel that she has already conceived a son without the aid of a man. You assume your receptive attitude of mind, a listening attitude, and imagine you are hearing the voice of the one you have chosen to tell you what you desire to know. Imagine that you hear him tell you that you are and have that which you desire to be and to have. You remain, you remain in this receptive state until you feel the thrill of having heard the good and wonderful news. Then, like Mary of the story, you go about your business in secret telling no one of this wonderful and immaculate self-impregnation, confident that in due season you will express this impression. The father generates the seed or germinal possibility of a son, but in a eugenic impression. He does not convey the spermatozoa from himself to the womb. He has it born through another medium. Consciousness desiring is the father generating the seed or idea. A clarified desire is the perfectly formed seed or the only begotten son. This seed is then carried from the father, consciousness desiring, to the mother, consciousness of being and having the state desired. This change in consciousness is accomplished by the angel or imaginary voice of a friend telling you that you have already achieved your objective. The use of an angel or friend's voice to make a, cons a conscious impression is the shortest, safest, and surest way to be self-impregnated. With your desire properly defined, you assume an attitude of listening. Imagine you are hearing the voice of a friend. Then make him tell you, imagine he is telling you, how lucky and fortunate you are to have fully realized your desire. In this receptive attitude, I'm sorry, in this receptive attitude of mind, you are receiving the message of an angel. You are receiving the impression that you are and have that which you desire to be and to have. The emotional thrill of having heard that which you desire to hear is the moment of conception. It is the moment you become self-impregnated. 
the moment you actually feel you are now that or have that which heretofore you but desire to be or to possess. As you emerge from this subjective experience, you, like Mary of the story, will know by your changed attitude of mind that you have conceived a son, that you have fixed a definite subjective state, and will in a little while express or objectify this state. This book has been written to show you how to achieve your objectives. Apply the principle expressed herein, and all the inhabitants of the earth cannot stop you from realizing your desires. And that was actually the last little chapter. That was the last chapter of that book. Freedom for all. Imagine that. So, it's a little uh, different take on that story than what uh, some other groups would have you believe. And uh, kind of uh, makes it a little bit more digestible and uh, usable, in my opinion, right? So, and, and it, plus it just goes nicely with that last story about the, the weeping statue. It's in very synchronistically with how the show ended up going this time. So yeah, Neville Neville's basically just making another uh pointing out how this is another story in the Bible which explains how to uh to use these I don't want to call them psychological tricks, but uh just different different methods different uh different ways of explaining the same thing which is basically that uh feeling is, is the secret which is the name of his book that he published right after this one and how how to get into that uh feeling mode and how it helps us manifest what we would like to see reflected in our outer world course that first has to start within us within us right which is what he's talking about being self-impregnated so well neville's writings are some of those worth like rereading many times because you're going to get a deeper understanding from them probably every time 100 i try i try to slow down during the readings so people can digest as we go along but yeah definitely go back and re-listen to to these episodes these readings if you want to or pick up the book i highly recommend any of his works um but yeah I, I enjoy preparing these on the weekly basis at least as long as we're doing neville and i'm sure that we'll move on to other things eventually but yeah the more times that you read neville the uh the more it clicks and the more you want to put it into practice at least that's how i found what i found anyway in my case and that'll do it for the sword segments but before we go i did want to remind everybody to head on over to mysticalwares.com and sign up for the free 
weekly scalar energy session. I have done so already, and I saw that this week we will be working on micronutrient supplementation. And for anybody that is uh, not familiar with what I'm talking about right now, uh, Derek has a, a machine in, well, maybe I'll just let Derek explain it. You'll probably do a better job than me. But uh, it's based off of uh, the Rife frequencies, right? Isn't that right, Derek? Royal Raymond Rife and his work with the... Uh... Exactly. Yeah, those are the codes that we use for each of the different weeks, sessions through the Scalar machine. And we did, as I mentioned earlier, expand the website recently. Um, so there's a larger description, and I would take a large amount of time to go over that right now. Um, but it is on the website under the Scalar Energy tab that, that explains the, the device that we're using to generate the Scalar waves. It's super easy to sign up, guys. You're basically just giving him your, your name and uh, email address, and it gets it gets put in between these two two parts of the machine, right? And uh, that is how we are quantumly entangled and connected. You will receive the the benefits of whatever that the frequency is used for that week, right? And uh, I do believe that this is picked based off of group feedback, right, Derek? Uh, depends like last week was overall well-being this week was is something different right these are based off of yeah we'll vary it from different requests we get and things like that so um like i think like you said this one's micronutrient supplementation oh, that's like what the heck is that so we describe more of that on the website um but it does vary and then i'm going to start expanding the different um well codes that we have that we input in the frequency uh or into the uh scalar waveform so that'll vary here in the near future Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but yeah, like I said, everybody go and sign up. It's free. Uh, see if you can uh, sign up for the, the text or the email reminders. So you'll get a notification of when it, when it, it exactly starts for your time zone and sit back and just uh, notice what happens. And maybe maybe write in right into the show and see if you, if you notice anything weird happening or anything different. I want to hear about it. And uh, besides that, please do share the show. If you like what we're doing here, please help spread the love any way that you can. Uh, rate the show. Uh, rate, it, rate it on whatever platform you're using. Even if you don't like what we're doing, uh, just getting those uh, reviews in does help the show uh, reach other, other uh, listeners. And until next time, Karo Nats, Carpe Diem. 